Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Amit Bendov. Amit has helped build three unicorn startup companies and is currently the co-founder and CEO of Gong, an AI sales intelligence platform valued over $7 billion. And SafeGraph is a customer of Gong's. Amit, welcome to World of DAS. Excited to be here. Now, because Gong's platform has analyzed millions of sales conversations, you probably know more about how to be an effective B2B salesperson than almost anybody. What are some of the non-obvious things that you've learned? First, it's billions now. Billions like when we started. Okay, I'm sorry. Billions of conversations. Wow, that's a lot, actually. It's mind-boggling to the speed that we grow. There are things that are kind of universally true. And some of them you could read on the Gong blog post, like share data, things that you should or shouldn't say. The most mind-blowing stuff is actually company-specific. So it looks at what's true for one company or one line of products. But I'll give you like one that is universal. Like from the early days that surprised us, we started like reaching out to people, say, oh, we have this amazing thing called Gong. You should die. And I said, oh, and I said, this is great. You should... Uh, it drives me nuts with the filler words that my salesman are using, like with the ooms and ahs and all that. And we said, okay, like, fine, like whatever you find interesting. But when we analyzed the data, we actually found the correlation between filler words and success. Do you know what it is? No. Zero. Okay. So it doesn't matter. You can have filler words. You cannot have filler words. It doesn't matter. You can say ooms and ahms and likes, and it has no bearing on success. Zero. People were spending too much time coaching people on those filler words where it acts like zero significance when we actually look at data. So that's one thing that doesn't. Obviously, there are a lot of things that do make a question. You know, the number of questions you ask, when do you ask them, what type of questions. Actually, filler words buys us time to think. Yep. And that's what you want. You want a salesperson to think process, be thoughtful, ask good questions. So filler words is actually just a way to like think when you talk. What are some other insights that maybe go against conventional wisdom? So one of our customers, actually a pretty big brand, found that there's a part when they introduced themselves, when they talk about who we are as a company, and they saw that actually that's a good thing up to a point. So that part, like who we are, you know, we're the leader in this and yada, yada, is good for them, like up to two minutes. And if you go over two minutes, there is actually a cliff. Conversion rate starts to drop. Isn't that true for anything? Like if you go over two minutes on anything, it starts to drop or is it just about the interest? Not necessarily. I mean, they're a pretty large brand, so they don't really need to be introduced. People kind of know who they are. If you're a small startup, maybe, yeah, two minutes strikes me as a lot, but we saw that it's good up to a point. And, you know, every company is different. What's the typical length of an intro sales call? Is it 20 minutes, an hour? Like, how does it typically go? Between 45 minutes to an hour. I mean, if you've already like agreed that sometimes there is a call before it, it might be like 10 minutes to say, hey, this is the problem we're solving. Like a BDR call or something. Yeah, it'd be the R. And then initial you know, discovery demo would be like 45 minutes to an hour. Have you changed your mind about how to hire for salespeople based on some of this data? First, we are using, and a lot of customers using Gong for their interview process. It saves a lot of time, right? In six interviews, you could do like one or two. 
better candidate experience, less time spent on interviewing. So that's one thing we do look at is someone asking like thoughtful questions. They're really listening. It means that what follows next is actually takes into account what we've provided them and they respond to those questions. Those are actually good qualities. If they ask hard questions, they're questions that people kind of hard, like what might make you like not want to hire me? What concerns do you have? If they don't close, I mean, this is like the basic, basic, basic. Do they try to close me, right? So even like me as a CEO, do they end the call with, hey, how did I do? What are your thoughts? Based on what you've heard so far, what are the odds of you like moving forward to a proposal? And then they ask, what's the next step? Yeah. What's the timeline? Yeah. Okay. So it's a deal. Yeah. Yeah. They have to manage the pipeline just like any other deal. Now I know that like everybody's listening to their podcast right now. So now they know what they need to do. But even when people know what they need to do, they don't always do it. It is surprising that some people just don't, maybe they're nervous because they're talking to a CEO, but I mean, you should be able to sell to a C-level, right? So that's actually like pretty representative. Do they feel comfortable talking with a senior leader? Is there a point in a sales call where you're asking too many questions or is there some sort of laugh or curve where you want to ask five questions, but you don't want to ask 20 or how's it work? On average, right? And it's not true for every company, every types of call. There is like a magic number of 14. Now, please don't say to your director, Gong said like 14 is a magic number. It's not always true. It just depends. It's all dependent on companies. But we saw a large volume that up to 14 have like increasing returns. And from that point, decreasing. There's also like type of question, like sometimes companies qualify. They want to ask you like questions like at the beginning of the call. Now there's a number and I don't remember exactly what it is, but it shouldn't feel like a grilling section, right? A customer is coming to ask you a question. If you start like, you know, 30 questions up front, it's a turn off. A good B2B company should be able to qualify a customer in three to four questions. Like you should know like, hey, do you do this? Do you do that? Very, very quickly, you should be able to know whether these are customers or not. You might have 20 because sometimes like, you know, what metrics are important to you? Discovery questions. What concerns do you have? There are some standard questions. Don't open like with these. Make it more natural throughout the conversation. Weave them in down the road. So if they're like a spread, you peanut butter them across the conversation. That's actually like a very good experience. You start with too many questions up front for experience. When I listen to the gong calls for Safecraft's best sales rep, he has way more questions than when I'm on a sales call. He's much, much better at doing discoveries, much, much better at doing some of these other types of things. Is that just one of the common use cases in gong? Is just like learning from your best sales reps and just listening to their calls? Yeah, obviously, that's a great way to learn. Sometimes it's not the best. Because they're just so magnetic or something, you can't copy them. Nobody really knows, you know, traditionally you come up with a playbook and say, here's how we're going to do it. And you train everybody. But then, you know, someone and they're not necessarily the best. I mean, they're just good. And they had a good convo. It works. And other people copy, right? So you look a lot faster as a team than as a bunch of individuals. What do you think of like how much small talk one should have at the beginning of a call? There is kind of like a number. If I have to guess, and again, I shouldn't be guessing, but uh, I think it's a couple of minutes. So a little bit is good. How's the weather, kids, those types of things, vacation? 
Yeah, but these are not like hard rules. It's not that if you talk with someone like four minutes, then you lose the deal. Again, it's averages that kind of work fine or ranges, and you should always like play it by ear and see what makes sense for the customer. They're talking with you, right? If it's a two-way conversation, then that's fine. You could go longer, you could go shorter. Just feel like who are you talking with? And if they look impatient, you know, get to the point. What are some of the best techniques for more cold calling? I actually think the best techniques should warm up the conversation. They shouldn't be cold. I think the best cold calling isn't so cold. You have researched, you know the person, maybe you could do some name dropping or issues. So when you call them, it feels that it's like relevant. You're not just carpet bombing a list or someone that you've got someone on the phone and you start talking. So it should feel you're with a safe graph. I noticed that you're doing these things or I hear the thing I saw on your website. I also spoke with one of your investors, Joe Schmo. He said that I should be up. So now I have your attention. If it's totally called, I mean, use your name, full name. That's how she like makes you feel look more important than just, hey, sorry about you. How are you doing today? Right. You're not really interested in how I'm doing, who you are, why you're calling, and ask for permission to tell a little bit more. 2021 was a very kind of frothy time. 2022 had a lot more budgetary constraints for a particular buyer. How have you seen that data move over time? Can you see data in like recessions? Do you have some sort of predictiveness of recessions? As soon as the whole thing started in the first quarter, we have created what we call a smart tracker, which is an AI tracker for budget, economic challenges, conversations about layoffs, about budget cuts, all of the headwinds, all of these terms, and allow everybody to use gone. They can see a chart. So how is it trending? Which accounts? What are people saying? So you're always on top because the impact isn't spread evenly across all industry and all types of customers. So you know, is it like 6% or 67% of my business, right? What type of customer? So that's like very important. What generally we're seeing is that because Gong is the ability to track not only like what people say, but who is involved in a deal, to what extent, and what's the sales cycle. So definitely sales cycle are longer right now. For most companies, approval now requires CFO and sometimes CEO or both. Yep. Before there might not even been a finance approval, whereas now there's some sort of core finance approval above a certain dollar amount or something. Right. Definitely a lot more scrutiny. So you should be prepared, expect longer sales cycle and train your people how to sell to a CFO or CEO. Or sell a cost savings as opposed to some other type of thing. If you talk about how you can grow, that resonates less, you know, how you could cut costs like today. How is selling to like a C-level different from selling to maybe a mid-level? Well, in many ways. First, you really have to understand their priorities, which are different and functional. They might not know anything about the... So if you're selling to, let's say, a controller in finance, right? And you talk about like bookkeeping software, they may understand. If you call a CFO, they will still understand. If you call a CEO like me, I'm pretty clueless, right? We need to explain to me that I don't understand the functional side, why your software is better than something else. What does it do? And why is it important that I keep your business or why is the price justified? If someone was selling like bookkeeping software, why would they even need to call the CEO? Is there a good reason? Is there a point where you're calling too high? There is a normal time, but it just goes back to the previous question. Now, 
the CEO might say, why are we spending like 100000 on this booking software? I can do it like a 20% of the cost with something else. That's why you talk to them, right? So normally, we're not involved and you shouldn't be calling them. But now they're doing this. So if you want to like secure your business, it's not a bad idea to be able to have that conversation. I know you don't have a ton of gong recordings on in-person engagements, but how do you think in-person is different from calling or video? You have to look at like all mediums. So phone, you have just the auditory track. Video, you have visual and auditory. So you can see facial expression, for example. In person, there are other senses. You're close. You could see body language. Maybe you have coffee together. You warm up. The conversation is a little more intimate. Phone is actually the hardest because it's the least amount of information that flows and least amount of connection. And in-person is where you have like the fullest impact. Is there some sort of person that might be better at one versus the other? I have not thought about it and I don't have data. So my opinion, what it's worth. At Gong, you know, we try to like mix up with data and we pay a little attention to opinions. But my opinion here, that's what I have. Some people like are pretty good. If they're more of an introvert, they might prefer chat or email that does not involve like direct contact. And some people are like very relational and, you know, take someone out for coffee or dinner that have like a better experience. But even if I sell in person, it's not 100%. There's texting, there's email, there's phone, video, and obviously like in person. So it's really omni-channel. One of the problems with sales, especially B2B sales, is that there's just so many metrics and there's so many things to track. Is there some sort of way of narrowing down the number of things that one contracted just a few? Well, there's one, right? It's obviously the revenue if you want to. It's uh, attainment. Then there are a lot of others. And those should vary. There are some that I would say like general health, inputs and outputs. And then the other ones, they depend on what's the focus at that point. So if you see that there's a problem with the closing, so you want to focus maybe on some of the discovery questions or activity levels, or if there aren't enough pipelines, it's pipeline generation. If you're launching, there's a new strategic messaging. It's like, here's how we position our solution. This is the new way. For example, we just spoke about the economic things. And now the most important thing is to describe how your software actually helps cut costs, not increase revenue. Some people are kind of still selling the old ways. So a good metric to set what percent of the accounts are we leading with this new kind of proposal? How many of them have this offer? So those things vary based on the hot topic that are most important for that certain period. It's interesting how sales is so metrics driven. Like when I started my career, I started by running engineering teams and running engineering teams is actually like incredibly qualitative, whereas running sales teams is incredibly quantitative. In some ways, you would think it'd be the opposite. If you just didn't know anything about business, you would think it would be the opposite. Is this metrics driven thing a good thing? And if so, is there a way to like get it to other parts of the org? Engineering is a small number of activities that are very qualitative and it's hard to measure the outputs. I mean, there are some attempts, you know, sometimes people want to buy many lines of code, which they write per day, which is actually like a terrible matrix because the best developers are fewer lines of code. Or something's a little more compact. But sales, especially larger organization, it is measurable. That's a good thing. You know what the outcomes are. An activity is very predictive, like the number of meetings tends to be very predictive of lots of things. And they're correlated, right? You don't want to measure people purely based on number of meetings because then you get the wrong behavior. It's very tricky. 
But generally, yeah, more activities results in more outcomes. Yep. The first company you're at, Click Software, sold sales for a very great outcome. It was $1.3 billion. Then you were the CMO of Panaya, which is another great outcome. Then you were brought on as the CEO of SciSense, which became a unicorn. You're kind of this like hat trick leader. Like, what are some non obvious things that allowed you to scale these companies repeatedly? And why aren't you retired? Well, first, I will never retire. Like, I'll probably continue to work from the grave, right? I enjoy what I do. This is just work of creation for me. I like creating stuff. I see like almost like art. Some people know how to paint photos and create great music. For me, it's companies. I read a lot. So early, I never knew. I never like went to business school. I'm a former engineer. I learned to code. I know computer science. But I was like curious, followed my curiosity a lot and experiment a lot of things. I was fortunate to work at companies that allowed me to try a lot of different things. Most of them worked, some didn't. And that's how you learn what's working, what's not working, what are the best practices, and try to make it better like every time. I'm really interested in the process of turning human interactions into actionable data. And sales probably does seem like the best one to start with. But what do you think are some other candidates for this type of data collection analysis? Yeah, sales is definitely not the only one. We see already like dozens of possibilities. So what we're aiming to create is really autonomous applications, applications that run themselves. So traditionally, people would use a SaaS application by entering data. Let's say in sales, you talk with the customers and then you go to the CRM and you enter data, right? And that's how the system is up to date. Or if you interview a candidate, you speak with a person and then you go to the ATS system, the applicant tracking system, and you fill forms and scores and all these things, right? Or if you run a project, you have a meeting a status, and then you go and update the project status based on emails and all of that. So we find it's like pretty inefficient. First, people hate doing that. Second, they don't do a very good job. You can't capture all the information. And uh, Elon and I, when we started a company, we felt, hey, it's 2015. AI is so powerful that it can understand language in a reasonable way. Now it can understand language like even better. But when we started, it was like good enough that it could capture the information, extract structured data from unstructured data. That's essentially what you're doing. And then turns it both into insights, but ultimately into action. So now Gong is working on the next step that actually will draft the emails for you, will guide you like who to reach out and how to speak with customers and ultimately actually do all of the work for you. Update records, eliminate one-on-one meeting, predict the, uh, the revenue, better, faster, and cheaper than salespeople. And you could revolutionize almost any software that's kind of like taps into conversations. It could be like internal emails within the company. It could be like customer-facing emails, in-person meetings, anything, and understand enough to automate a lot of our work. And do you think that's going to start to happen in like many, many other types of areas? Internal meetings or other types of things we can start to think about? Or You see a lot of our customers are already using it for anything from engineering, HR, internal service desk, procurement, project management, lots of areas. Sales is the first, but it's a huge opportunity. We call it a SaaS duo. So if you look at SaaS, the first generation wasn't SaaS, it was on-prem as the enterprise application like Siebel or SAP on PeopleSoft. Then came SaaS and the mantra was no software. And that is true. But if you think about like who doesn't have software, it's the IT people. 
There is no infrastructure, there are releases, but for end user, which is the bulk of the users, it's kind of the same. If I use like ACT or Siebel, some kind of like web CRM, it's the same thing. Here we talk about no software for real, for the rest of us. The software overhears what is going on, understands enough to be quote unquote dangerous, and then acts on your behalf. You get on a call and imagine we finished this recording and an email goes out, Hey, Aaron, really enjoyed talking to you. The questions are great. Let me get back to you some of the data points. Happy holidays and uh, looking forward to our next meeting in San Francisco. That's it. You could do a lot better than doing on your own. Faster, better, cheaper, more enjoyable. There's this interesting tension in the tech world with entrepreneurs. On the one hand, it's like way easier to start a company today than before. There's coding boot camps, there's GitHub, there's low code, there's Y Combinator, there's all those resources, there's Saster, and you know, relatively easy to get money. You'd think the average age of the founder would be going down. But at the other side, you just have all these like second, third, fourth time founders that are out there or experience. A lot of them did something even in the web 1.0. And so you have all these like very old founders, people who are in their 40s, even people now in their 50s and 60s that are founding companies. Where do you think that tension ends up? This diversity is great. There is an adventure being 22 and there is an adventure being 52. If I'm 22, I probably have like better understanding some of the younger user personas and I come up with uh, ideas and, you know, the cliches. I might not know that you can't defy gravity. So I, I could try like stupid things. But with more experience, you should build like bigger companies because... It's more complex these days. There is accessibility of funding. That's the easy part. But to navigate a consumer space, the competitive space, all of that, building a great team, creating great culture within a company, and scaling a company is a lot to learn. And you can't learn that at school. There are no CEO schools out there. Maybe we should start one or <laughs> I would say the average age of a CEO, tech CEO, at least anecdotally, seems to be going up. Yes. And you would think it wouldn't be, but it seems to be going up quite dramatically than it has before outside of, you know, maybe just like the Y Combinator, which is still probably people in their 20s. And even there, it's probably gone up to people in their 30s. One of the ideas I'd love to throw about you is that there's the advantage of being older. So you have some wisdom, maybe you have more experience, you have maybe a little bit more access to capital, you have a better network. The advantage to being younger is you have more energy, you can calculate things much faster, you can maybe move faster, you have more time. And on the calculation side, today, a 50-year-old using technology appropriately can calculate things maybe faster than they could have when they were 22. And so maybe some of the disadvantages of being older, technology has been more helpful to people who are older than people who are younger. What do you think about that crazy idea? I think there, the reality is there was a bias, especially like in Silicon Valley 10 or 15 years ago that, you know, you shouldn't be starting a startup unless you're like 22. Does everybody want like the next Zuckerberg or something? By no means, you could create a like very successful startup when you're 22, but there was a bias, which is a shame. There was a data, I think from Harvard Business School, something that shows that 35 and above, you're likely more successful. And again, it's averages. So now it's possible to get funding, like no matter what your age, as long as you have the experience and a great idea. And again, working 60 hours a week doesn't make you successful. 
working in the right direction, doing the right things, creating product people want, having the right competitive strategy, hiring the top talent. Just an example, I could work like eight hours a day. You could be working 16 and I would still beat you to the market. It does seem it is correlative quite a bit. The people I know who work more hours are generally way more successful. It does seem like there's an extremely high correlation between how much somebody works. I agree. If a meat works one hour, it might take someone who's 22, three hours to catch up just because you have so much more experience. But there is some correlation between the two, or you don't agree? There is some. Yeah, I work a lot of hours. It's more like a passion. I don't think it's a must. There are a lot of things that are more important than working 60 hours a week. It also takes some people 100 hours a week to work 40. And it takes other people 40 hours to work 40, right? And it does seem like the more experience you have, the easier it is to get an hour to hour work. But there are some people who need two hours for every one hour produced. Yeah, I had a colleague many years ago when someone left the office at, you know, five or six, I was okay, like, you know, are you committed or something? But we had like one person who was a manager at the company. His desk was always so organized. He had like a whiteboard with all the project, almost like the lines were perfect in a row, so organized. Every day at five, he would go home, have a drink with friends. And I can guarantee you, he got a lot more stuff done in his like nine hours than me, 20 hours. He was just more efficient and organized. I said, you know what? Some people just are successful and they're a lot more efficient and productive and they get the quality time to think about stuff. The hours themselves aren't the important thing. Okay. There's been a lot written about the Israeli tech scene. What are maybe some non-obvious things that people wouldn't totally understand unless they were in it? It's kind of crazy. So first, the largest number of per capita startups or tech companies in the world on a per capita. So it's a very small country, like 8 million people. So that's one. Second, the number of tech companies is roughly the same as all of Europe. I don't know if it's a little more or less, but in the ballpark of all of Europe. Yeah, which has a 450 million population. Yeah, and for 8 million people. So just the numbers are astonishing. Is that something good about Israel or is that just something bad about Europe? No, it's good about Israel and it's not bad about Europe. So there are some things that play a role. First, there's some unique circumstances, just the concentration of talent here. It's not that Israel is a monopoly on IQ. There are smart people like a lot of different places, but there's a concentration. Some of the tech trainings provide some of the military elite units. The immigration from the Soviet unions, like in the 80s, helped a lot of talent. There's a bunch of things. But Israel is a very small country. And it's not an interesting market for a tech company. For Gong, I don't have anyone to sell to in Israel. Yeah, but I mean, Sweden is a very small country too with very smart people. They have some good startups, but not nearly the same number as Israel. But they have other things. I'll talk about some of the cultural attributes that I think help entrepreneurs. But if I'm in France, I could build like a decent-sized local business Israeli companies are born global on day one because there's nothing to do here, right? So you're born global, you always think how you're going to make it big in the US and then you go to Europe or something. Second, for better or worse, it's not necessarily good. We don't have like a ton of respect for rules. So it drives you nuts. People like cut through lines. People will park where they shouldn't. And sometimes it's a little worse than that. 
But that's actually the quality when you're an entrepreneur. It's actually like a great quality because like, you know, said who, who said that I shouldn't be doing it or why, or I know better, right? I can do better. So that spirit of understanding the roles, understanding what's really a role and what isn't is something that's crucial to create breakthrough technology. But there are a lot of countries where they have cultures where they don't respect rules and there's a lot of countries where they have smart people and it just doesn't seem like the lightning hit the bottle of any other country like Israel. I once saw like a speaker, he actually ran the R&D center for Apple here in Israel and he distilled it. So there are others. The drive, the ambition, the intellectual curiosity, the competitive nature of people like within each other. Oh, I have the bigger company. I have the bigger company. The drive that you don't see in some other countries. Maybe a higher tolerance for failure. Higher tolerance for failure. I think it's more like desire to success than tolerance for failure. You fail like we'll be eaten alive in the press or something. So yeah, we don't celebrate failures, but very ambitious goals. All right, this is great. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? There are quite a few. Actually, like at Gong, we have one of our operating principles, mistrust conventional wisdom, because conventional gets to like ordinary results. If you're an extraordinary, you have to always question. It doesn't mean that everything needs to be different. What conventional wisdom should we mistrust most? I think failure is overrated. There is some cultural things especially in Silicon Valley, you know, people say, oh, I dropped out of high school, right? Or I failed three companies. It's not like the end of the world. If you failed, that's okay. And you should learn from it. But don't celebrate the failure. Give me success like anytime. I learn a lot more from successful people what worked. There are so many ways that you could fail. Mathematically, a lot more solutions actually work. It's not that I will not hire someone that had failed at a certain career stage or something. But Give me someone who succeeded like three times with three different companies. I'll take them anytime. Yeah, that's great advice. This is awesome. Thank you, Amit Bendov, for joining us at World of Das. I follow you on LinkedIn, which I encourage our listeners to follow you there. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.